Thanks for listening to this episode of Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast series. In this episode, our guest is John Stolfis, Chief Investment Strategist, and our host is Peter Cattere, Managing Director. Both are from Oppenheimer Asset Management. This episode was recorded on October 5th, 2021. Please subscribe to our channel to instantly access previous episodes. Subscribing also means you won't miss out on new episodes with our thought leaders who bring you timely and relevant insights about the markets, investing, business, new technologies, and life in general. Welcome to another Let's Talk Future podcast. I'm your host, Peter Cattere of Oppenheimer Asset Management. I'm very excited today to welcome back a familiar and a very well-regarded voice, the Chief Investment Strategist of Oppenheimer Asset Management, John Stolfus. John has spent more than 30 years as a strategist, portfolio manager, advisor, and market commentator. John is regularly published, including his weekly market strategy radar screen commentary and monthly chart book, both available through oppenheimer.com or your Oppenheimer advisor. And in addition to John's accomplished Wall Street career, he's an educator having taught market theory and economics at New York University and is a highly accomplished lifelong musician. Always interesting to hear his perspective on the events driving the market. So, John, welcome back. Thanks, Peter. Good to be here with you today. So let's jump right in, John, to the topic that seems to be grabbing much of the headlines of the Wall Street press these days, and that's inflation. You've been around Wall Street for a long time. You've seen many interest rate and inflation cycles. What is your thinking today about where we stand in inflation? It's a good question, uh, and I think it's the central uh, question that many people have today. Uh, with prices of gasoline and food elevated, automobiles elevated, prices of oil, etc. We think it is stickier than we had earlier expected, meaning that we thought it would be relatively a short transition, but it would seem that the supply chain disruptions that have been caused by entrance in and out of the pandemic, different plans that were made that turned out to be different than the outcomes that happened, in other words, much more demand than supply. And I think many of those who who create supply, whether it is of services uh, with their employees or products, had really expected, you know, this would be a long, deep slog with the virus. And indeed, what it was instead was it was the shortest recession in the history of the United States, just two months. One follow-up question on inflation, John. The term transitory is used a lot in the press lately when discussing the recent spikes in inflation. I believe this is really focused around supply chain disruptions and the associated costs. Semiconductors, car parts, and a number of items are scarce, delayed, or otherwise hard to come by. So help us make sense of these different aspects of the inflation scenario. Well, Pete, uh, some supply chains will be easier to right-size and others won't. Think of some of the problems that exist. Farm worker shortages, weight staffing shortages, truck drivers, chip shortages. Different problems will take longer or shorter periods of time to remedy. Know that business, the old entrepreneurial spirit, thrives on challenge when the opportunity to meet challenges uh, can produce profits. Risks for chip ramp up, for example, include precarious nature near term, at least of Taiwan vis-a-vis China, while shortage of labor in kitchens, of restaurants and hotels would be sooner remedied as stimmy check inspired and supported job selectiveness fades as STEMI account deposits are reduced by spending and other activities. So when we look at very particular events to the consumer, things like holiday shopping and those types of things, what do you think the real impact will be? I think, again, it will will depend upon what the shopper is looking for 
and how effective the importer was in placing their orders. You know, some some retailers have actually chartered container ships to bring the goods to shore. And in some cases, uh, it's believed that some retailers have actually doubled or tripled their orders to make sure that at least one of the ships that they've ordered gets into the port. And do you expect this to be passed through in the form of price increases to the consumer? I think that also depends upon the margins that are related to the product, the demand for the product. I think shoppers this year will have to be uh, smarter than they've ever been before. But hey, they've got the internet, you know. Right, right. Well, one final point on inflation, John. Obviously, year to date, the commodities market, I think, has has moved at a rate and a pace that that many were surprised by. We've seen things like natural gas up over 80, 85% year to date, gasoline up over 50%, oil up substantially. Obviously, commodities are a big part of input costs. Talk about this component of inflation for just a moment. Pete, I think commodity surges in the broadest sense are less likely to stick in the modern world as technology facilitates discovery and processing from a palette of global regional resource centers. Some others will be tougher to manage. Uh, With commodities, however, the rule of thumb among economists is the best cure for high prices is high prices. Look for the competition to come back the further we extricate ourselves from this pandemic-oppressed world we've been in. So a follow-up question, John, on commodities. Let's talk for just a moment about oil. In the last few weeks, obviously, we've seen crude oil prices increase a great deal. OPEC seems to be back in the news again. Let's talk about your perspective on oil specifically. When it comes to oil, what we have to consider is a glance around the world, and there's different causes for the problems and shortages that exist, whether it's gas lines or no gas at the pump in the UK, higher prices in the United States, and throughout Europe, problems with natural gas as well, that they're very dependent upon the Russian pipeline. And uh, the Russians seem to be doling out that oil particularly. At a careful rate. (laughs) Very bad rate this time. Uh, But the reality is when it comes to commodity prices, one of the things, especially with oil, you have to consider that in March of 2020, a barrel of oil was selling at one point for negative $37 a barrel. So we know there's plenty of oil around. The problem is that the the landscape has changed somewhat. Uh, From a point of view of the U.S., we have an administration that is very much driven to provide a tailwind to alternative energy. To the extent President Biden very early on in his administration began with curbing a pipeline that was uh, expected to go online, cut that out. And some of that uh, essentially has elevated, once again, the role of OPEC. And OPEC as a producer of oil is reluctant to uh, produce too much and lower the price of oil when they can enjoy getting paid more per barrel. It also has the implications of further policy by the administration favoring alternative oil has somewhat pressed oil producers uh, into reconsidering their thoughts of normal investments that they might have made to increase production. Absolutely. So in talking about commodities, obviously, China is a very important part of that conversation as they are one of the largest global users across the commodity complex. So let's take a step back. You've been to China many times. You advise many sophisticated clients and global institutions on their allocation decisions on whether to invest their dollars in the markets in China. What is your view on the state of our economic and political relationship today in China? Well, I think the the relationship that we have uh, with China today is more troubled than it's been uh, in the time that I've really known China from having visited China. 
having my first trip to China was in 2004, and my most recent was in 2019. My point on this is the uh, politically, President Xi, since he was elected in November of 2012, has been shown to be very much pro-old-style communism, a disfavoring of business entrepreneurism, the independence of it, and more involvement of the government uh, at every step of the way, whether it's a production or delivery of services. As a result of that, uh, we find that China is not anything as uh, fine a trading partner as it once was. Uh, in our own case, uh, we have, in order to uh, provide greater comfort for our investors, within a portfolio that we manage, it's a global ETF portfolio, we have eliminated the traditional exposure to emerging markets that would include about a 30% weighting in China and just have emerging markets ex-China. Interesting. And you mentioned your market strategy portfolio that you oversee. When you and your team sit down to think about something like China, John, what do you think the two or three most relevant factors are for a U.S. investor to consider when thinking about that market? Well, I think it has to do with any market that one invests in, but particularly in emerging markets, one like China, you have to think about transparency, governance, and accountability. And by the way, things are going in China, uh, not just recently, but they had been going for quite a while in terms of theft of intellectual property and favoring Chinese companies over foreign companies that even though they employed many Chinese people in China, they were disfavored. So we, we would have to say that it, it's been building for quite a while. Uh, we think it's a real shame because the, the China story is fabulous and we are very fond of the Chinese people. We think they are, as consumers, they look more like American consumers than any other group around the world that I can think of. And as entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurial spirit in China is very powerful. And that's probably one of the things that worries the communists. So let's shift that view back stateside a bit, John, and spend some time on the dynamics driving the U.S. market. To be sure, we're in the midst of a period of heightened volatility and heightened investor concern. We've seen several days over the last few weeks that had you know greater than normal downside pressure. Talk a little bit about what you do as a professional with 30 years of experience managing a significant portfolio on those big risk-off days. You know, on the risk-off days, I try to keep things in context. I think it, it, if you put things in historical context with the thought that History may not repeat itself, but however, it often does rhyme, while at the same time considering that past performance is any guarantee of future performance. Uh, when you put things in that kind of a context, what you realize is that volatility is with us uh, throughout market history. And in fact, in the last 30 years, the average volatility as measured by the maximum drawdown in a move from a peak in a given year to the, the low of that year. And that's um, intra-year, John, yeah, not calendar year. Exactly. That's it throughout the year. Throughout right? the year. Is in the case of the S&P 500, over a 30-year period, it's an average of 14.2%. And over a 20-year period, it's 16.2%. So, and that encompasses, the first 20-year period would encompass both the great financial crisis as well as the current pandemic crisis that we're coming out of. And the 30-year period would add to those two the, the blow-up of the tech bubble. And what that, and then you'd say, well, my gosh, does that mean every year we have either 14% or 16% uh, maximum drawdown. We, no, that's not the case. In fact, the least amount that we've had over the last 30 years has been in 2017 when the maximum drawdown was 2.58%. And just to show you that you can't please everybody, 
there were people that complained about it. Now, <laughs> this year we had it too because we were not able to get a better than a 5% drawdown most of this year and people were very concerned about it. Well, we just had it in the last few days and knocking on wood, I see that in this given day when we're making this record, it happens to be a good upside day. But our point is there's resilience in the market because when we compare this volatility that is evidenced by the maximum drawdown percentages that we, we mentioned, when you look at the periods in which this occurs, in the last 20 years, for example, the S&P 500 has returned on average around 7.5%. In spite of that yep. intra-year volatility of yep. north of 14, 15, 16%. Yep. And that's just price, okay? It right. doesn't include the dividends. So with the dividends, the returns are even better. Now, if you go over the 30-year period, it's 9.31% return, and that is a period that it somewhat ameliorates the last 20 years because you don't have the, the hardest effect of the great financial crisis of the pandemic. So that data would really lead one to believe it's a very normal part of a market cycle to have periods of volatility, periods of retrenchment, periods where the market backfills, gets stability yep. before it marches forward. So. Very normal so. course of what you've seen in your experience. One of the things we've talked a lot about this year, uh, John, internally and in various publications that you've put out, has really been the discussion between growth and value that's gone on over the last 12 to 18 months. And to be clear, you've maintained a very consistent position. That is, it's not one or the other. It's rather a balance of the two that makes the most sense. But we've come from the stay-at-home trade to the reopening trade to the recovery trade. Where are we in the growth value debate right now? Well, I, I think as to what the debate is, I think the debate is still outstanding. And on any given day, when you hear what various observers are saying, they'll say, oh, it's the end of growth. They're leaving growth and they're just going right. to value or they're leaving value today and going back to growth. And there's all this breathless reporting related around this. But what we've noticed, it, it appears to us on any given day, week or month or quarter, the market since the great financial crisis recovery period, which started in 2009, has shown a capability to rebalance and, and rotate on a day-to-day -day basis. And as a result of that, you know, you can have uh, all of a sudden you'll have a, yesterday, for example, was a day when value outperformed growth. Today, growth outperformed value, 24 hours later, mind you. And it's not an unhealthy sign. If anything, it, we see evidence that investors are trying to, particularly short-term investors, institutions, in that trading pattern of being prone to reverse this thought on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, it, what they're really showing is a desire not to over-concentrate in either growth or in value. But we think that for intermediate to longer-term investors, the real read here is they want to be diversified, they want to be exposed to both growth and value. And the way we interpret that in the portfolios we manage is we look for growthier value and garpier or growth at a reasonable price growth. You take that same approach, John, and move it also vertically in market capitalization as well. You've been a big proponent of being sort of market cap agnostic and really having a spread across the different market capitalization U.S. companies. Is that still the position and still the case of, of your view? You know, it is. I've been market cap agnostic for years now and causes no end of questions when, when people speak with me about it. And then people will be hearing in the press that, oh, you just want to be in large caps or just want to be in, in small caps. What we like to do is diversify across the palette of market capitalizations. And the reason why we do this, there's a number of reasons. It has to do with valuation. It has to, uh, there's also this tendency prone to rebalancing 
among smalls and mids and large. For instance, yesterday, small caps outperformed large caps. And today, large caps are outperforming small caps. So I think the message is own great businesses and own great sectors and not worry about the day-to-day gyrations quite so much. Yes, spoken as as a very knowledgeable investor. Right. Let's talk about international and domestic for just one moment as well in the in the allocation conversation you have again maintained a very balanced approach which has in a measured fashion maintained international and emerging market balance a lot of the fundamentals look attractive in those markets from a valuation perspective and others but the world seems reluctant to leave the u.s for a number of reasons what's your position on the international versus domestic conversation Our position has been for quite a while now, has been overweight the U.S., but maintain a significant or even better, well, I think better put, is meaningful exposure in both international developed as well as international emerging markets. And the reason why we feel that way is we think, well, the international markets uh, have much to offer in terms of rate of growth of GDP, not only the potential, but the realized rate of growth. Uh, they also, many of these countries have uh, businesses that have great products that we that are imported to this country. And But at the same time, what we find is with an uncertain world, investors on a global basis find that the U.S. dollar is a safe haven asset. Very rarely thought. Oftentimes you'll hear people talk about the dollar and, oh, the dollar, this and that. Well, the dollar is well-loved by many people, and it's, it's, it's got to do with that transparency, governance, and accountability, which it has had over a long period of time. And that tends to make U.S. assets popular. It's very good for the U.S. It also happens to be, when you consider, when it came to uh, the pandemic itself, while the U.S. was most certainly knocked for a loop by the pandemic, it was our market that performed the best of the markets around the world. So, John, with that point in mind, what are the areas you think in the U.S. market that are best positioned between now and that sprint to the end of the year? I want to do that growth value barbell related to the the 11 sectors of the S&P 500. I would illustrate it by saying you want to own information technology and consumer discretionary. Technology, of course, representing growth. Consumer discretionary represents both because it's got bricks and mortar as well as e-commerce, as well as combo of, of, of all of that and automobiles and airlines and a whole bunch of things. But you want to own the consumer discretionary because you don't want to bet against the U.S. consumer. Countless times I've heard, oh, the American consumer, the American consumer will shop if they have to take a vacuum cleaner to get the coins behind the sofa <laughs> out before they go shopping, okay? So, and then when it comes to the value area, We want to own financials and industrial. And because of the underperformance of the price of energy stocks versus the price of oil, whether it's WTI or Brent, we want to own the energy sector as well. In fact, uh, while it's not our favorite sector, long term is one of our least favorite sectors. Near term, uh, it most certainly is a favorite sector. And we have a waiting at the time of this uh, podcast of 3.5% versus 2.8% that the index shows right now in it. We also like materials because we think commodities make a lot of sense and the processors 
of commodities is the easiest way to expose yourself to that opportunity. You mentioned the financial sector, John. Is that a reflection of a steepening yield curve? Is that a reflection of the inexpensive nature of big banks? Or what makes the financial sector exciting to you? The financial, there are several things. One is the, is the steepening of the yield curve has been great tailwind for the, uh, uh, for the banks uh, whenever it has occurred this year. The challenges tend to be whenever the yield curve starts flattening immediately, people project the end of you know, the end of economic growth or right. dramatic slowing ahead or what have you. The steepening of the yield curve, but it's also that the banks and the investment firms tend to be great users and innovation in technology. And uh, there's all kinds of things happening in the financial sector that we like, especially going forward, considering an environment where interest rates, even as they rise, we believe modestly, because we think the Fed will be able to curb inflation intermediate to longer term. We can't help but think you you want to own the financials here. And I guess the flip side of that, it's always about good companies and good businesses. But what do you feel from a sector perspective faces the greatest headwind between now and year end? You mentioned energy as not being one of your favorites. Yeah, I would have to say from here to the end of the year, energy would be one of my favorites for, I would say it would be favorites to do well to the end of the year. But I would consider uh, the the utilities could be hit as we see interest rates begin to rise. The projection will likely the bond market could get oversold, and you can see yields rise higher than people expected for a short period of time. That would hurt bond proxies, and utilities are bond proxy. The other other sector would likely be when we look at it. If I think about it uh, for a few moments, it'd be consumer discretionary. You're beginning to see just today. We heard a big cereal manufacturer has a strike that their employees waging against the company, yeah. and it's at a time when the cereal that they put into the boxes is going up in price because problems that there have been in the agricultural sector related to employment, things yep. like that, mm-hmm. the truck deliveries, all of this stuff. While consumer discretionary is one of our favorites, consumer staples. So John, with those thoughts in mind, let, let's look at it from the other perspective. What sectors in the market do you feel face the greatest headwinds between now and the end of the year or beyond that? Say the potential headwinds lie in consumer staples and in utilities. Uh, consumer staples, uh, mainly because what they put into those cereal boxes or into those packages of cookies, the, the materials that create those, those cookies and those cereals have been going up higher. Wages have risen. There's problems in terms of cost of shipping. Lack sort of, of the perfect drivers. storm around yeah, those perfect businesses. perfect storm around yeah. it. And, uh, and then when it comes to utilities is the risk of becoming a bond proxy or recognized as a bond proxy. If rates start rising and, and they go through a period where the bond market looks more oversold and looks to be more oversold, you could naturally see them hit the utility. Certainly or, in the yeah. in many years ago when the first taper tantrum presented yeah. itself on Wall Street, utilities were a, a, a very, very yeah. volatile component. So, John, I want to conclude our podcast here today by covering a number of topics in really in a rapid fire fashion here and just run through a number of questions. Let me start with what is your target for year end on the S&P 500? 4,700. And that represents a total return of approximately, what, 7% from here? About 7%. Which, so is, which still, is much better than it was a few weeks ago when it was about 4%. Right. It's just, so there's still some upside to go for the stocks market. Are on, the stocks would appear to be, as they say on Wall Street, it would appear to be that stocks are on sale. Stocks are on sale. We've seen a fair amount of volatility on the 10-year Treasury this year. What is your target or expectation for where the year 10-year Treasury will end the year? I think today the, the 10-year Treasury closed at around 1.53%, as I recall. Uh, I, I would suggest that it'll probably close somewhere between 1.5% and 1.7%. Though between now and then, 
it could very easily hit 2%, maybe 2.15, something like that, on expectations that there would be more inflation or that the Fed wouldn't address inflation soon enough. But we think cooler heads will prevail, and we think we'll recognize the fact that we are an economy that is, is very strong, but is likely to slow in terms of a nominal uh, basis of growth uh, some as we come off the boil of exiting the pandemic. As we get closer to earnings season, how do you expect earnings to shape up for year-end? When we saw the second quarter earnings that ended a few weeks ago, it was really spectacular. I think there were four or, or five sectors that had triple-digit earnings in that period, but of course it was against very favorable comparisons or comps, as the analysts say. And when you compared the growth of earnings uh, 2021 to growth of earnings in 2020, year over year. Uh, now, as we go into the, the third quarter reporting season, what we will see is the comps will have improved on a year over year basis in the sense that they'll be tougher. So it, we're looking probably here for double digit, a good swath of double digit earnings growth with likely still some, maybe one or two that may come across with triple digit. We still might see that. But we'd look for a high double digit and high single digit among the, the lesser players. Couple of final questions, John. One of the big discussions going on, I guess, on the margins of Wall Street is the potential for a tax increase. How is the market viewing that, but either from the perspective of personal tax increase or corporate tax increase? Uh, you know, Pete, I, I've got to say, it, historically, you know, when we look at, at tax increases and higher periods of higher taxes, it has always been something when it is about to occur, there's a lot of worry around it in the market. And then when it actually does occur and taxes go move higher, the market finds something else that it likes, and it's just historically it's gone, it, it's disregarded the higher taxes. And maybe that's because people feel the need to invest more. To offset the <laughs> to potential offset tax the, rate. The, the, <laughs> the tax rate, that could be. Or, but the, the other side of it is that this time around, however, you know, many people across the country already find themselves paying over 50% of their compensation in taxes to take it much higher than this will be an experiment in science because in previous periods when it has been higher than it is at this time, usually there are a lot of loopholes. The current administration and those who want to raise taxes, period, wherever they may be in, in Congress, what they're looking at is to raise rates significantly and to reduce loopholes. And we, we don't think that's good for either entrepreneurism. We don't think it's good for people who work hard for their wages that we're concerned. And we think the market will likely at least pay some homage to that. But at the end of the day, Pete, it really depends. Where's the innovation coming from? Is there innovation? Is there something that can beat that disappointment about higher taxes? So we wouldn't expect that if the market does tip its hat, weaken some, if taxes move significantly higher, that it would be overall a hard problem for it to overcome. That said, the one area that does occur to us is what has been proposed has been a significantly higher rate that corporations might have to pay. And as you know, when I speak as a strategist, I am politically agnostic. But the one thing about the, the tax cuts that were put in by the prior administration is by reducing the taxes, they enabled many corporations to just keep more of their earnings. And so they earned more. They had those profits. They were able to do buybacks. They were able to invest in R&D, innovation. Invest in innovation. And they were also able 
to navigate with greater facility uh, the general disruption that comes with a trade war. We had right. tariffs that were extraordinary, and yet many companies did very well through that period because they were able to retain more of their earnings, to keep more of their earnings, and then offer them to their shareholders and within their company and all that. Now, that's something that could be, depending upon the level of the increase of taxation in corporations, what will happen, you'll see analysts will have to revisit their earnings projection. Because if your tax rate goes up from 20 to 25%, that doesn't look like a small percentage of an increase. There's one part of that conversation, John, that's the corporate effect. There's the other on what is the investor psychology facing increased capital gains taxes and other things. So have we seen any behavioral change in the market with this potential tax increase? Or is it too early to tell that? I can't help but think that every so often when we get these pullbacks that we've seen over the summer, it's some tax-related selling where people think if they get out now before the new tax law comes in. The risk is, of course, if they make the tax rate retroactive. We can't help but think that when we look at Washington today, we think that the the taxes are related to capital gains will be less onerous than they were initially proposed or, or desired to be by the administration. That said, at the end of the day, if 10-year treasuries are yielding under 3%, they don't offer much competition to the equity market if the equity market has dividends that are higher than that or can offer innovation that combined with dividends could offer potentially a better return. Regardless of tax or after tax. Ultimately, investing has to do with what are your objectives. You know, the way I love to talk about the rule of 72. Right. And I think it's important that people recognize you can double your money at 1%. Problem is it'll take you 72 years to do it. (laughs) If you can compound your return at 6%, you can double your money in 12 years. And that just shows you that looking for investments that can be matched to your goals and objectives makes all the sense in the world. John, one final question, and I know this is a, a, a bit of a, a ancillary question to your core focus, but I know you're asked by a lot of clients, is Bitcoin investable from your perspective right now? Gosh, you know, I just heard uh, Ken Griffin ask that question by Eric Schachter on Bloomberg Television. And I've got to say, uh, mine is parallel to, to his, although he would trade it as a business service. But I don't like Bitcoin. I don't, I don't see the fundamentals as the problem. I think that with Bitcoin, the big mistake was that the gentleman who said, who discovered it or created it, that he forgot to patent the blockchain the blockchain mechanism is what's brilliant. And today, because it wasn't patented, I guess anybody can use it. And I'm not a fan of it. And I I also think that there's a lot of speculation around it. And I believe that the governments of the world, whether they outlaw it the way China did, or whether they perhaps accept it, they're going to want to open it up to see where that money is going and tax it. So I don't think what attracts some people to it will continue when we meet five years from now. John, I want to thank you for your time today. We covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate your thoughts on inflation, on China, on the U.S. market, and on all of the things we covered at the conclusion. So thank you very much for joining me. Peter, thanks for the invitation to sit down and talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. Don't miss the next episode where we'll explore a variety of market-moving ideas and perspectives, bringing our firm's financial thought leadership directly to you. Please hit the subscribe button today.